Let us now turn in God's holy word this morning, a congregation to the book of the Song of Solomon, and we'll be reading the first chapter, the 17 verses, and our text will be verses 1 through 11 of the Song of Solomon. God's holy word for our hearts. The song of songs, which, Sol- which is Solomon's. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his love, for your love is better than wine. Because of the fragrance of your good ointments, your name is ointment poured forth. Therefore the virgins love you. Draw me away. We will run after you. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will be glad and rejoice in you. We will remember your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. I am dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not look upon me because I am dark, because the sun has tanned me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, O you whom I love, where you feed your flock, where you make it rest at noon, for why should I be as one who veils herself by the flocks of your companions? If you do not know, O fairest among women, follow in the footsteps of the flock and feed your little goats beside the shepherd's tents. I have compared you, my love, to my filly among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with chains of gold. We will make you ornaments of gold with studs of silver. While the king is at his table, my spikenard sent forth its fragrance. A bundle of myrrh is my beloved to me that lies all night between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blooms in the vineyards of Engedi. Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes. Behold, you are handsome, my beloved. Yes, pleasant. Also, our bed is green. The beams of our houses are cedar and our rafters of fir. Our text again being the first 11 verses of this beautiful chapter. And then just to note, we also turn to Proverbs chapter 30. Just turn back a few pages to Proverbs 30. We read verse 18 and 19. Words of Solomon as well, where he speaks God's word to us, he says, there are three things which are too wonderful for me. Yes, four which I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the air, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship in the midst of the sea, and the way of a man with a virgin. God's holy word for us to consider and to ponder deeply this morning. Dear brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, we 
all confess without a doubt that God indeed is love. He is the source of all love. We read in 1 John chapter 4 verse 10, and this, and, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be their propitiation for our sins. Congregation, if ever there is to be a true kind of genuine heartfelt love, even a redeeming love to, to cleanse us from our sins, such love has got to have come from God alone and, of course, from Jesus Christ, His Son. The Song of Solomon that we have before us this morning is also a song of love. It is, in fact, a collection of eight to ten, perhaps, depending how you count, various love songs that are all kind of attached to the other, one leading to another, building upon the other one. And in such a way, we would think, who possibly could have put this together but God alone? He alone could have put such a book together and given it to his people for their edification and, of course, for his own glory. Indeed, we know that this Song of Solomon is part of that genre of uh, literature in the scriptures called wisdom literature. It's that section that begins with the wisdom of Job, and then the wisdom of the Psalms, and then of Solomon, uh, or sorry, of Proverbs, and of Ecclesiastes, and now, lastly, the Song of Solomon. This song, as well, contains something of the beautiful wisdom of God that He wants us to know and to practice for our human relationships, and in particular, that whole character and domain of, of human love between a man and a woman, between a husband and his wife. And yet, somehow, we must see here something as well of the relationship of love that the Lord Jesus Christ has for His church and His church has for Him. And so, we need so much to hear this kind of instruction because we know how terribly sin has deformed and corrupted human love and its expression between a man and a, man and a woman within the human race. So far has sin been, sin has perverted the expressions of that true human love that God has designed as male and female, as created in His image. This beautiful God-ordained love between the Shulamite, as she, as she is called in chapter 6 verse 13, and the love she has for King Solomon and he for her is expressed in a very uninhibited kind of a way, in a very easy, straightforward, in a very plain kind of a way, a natural kind of a way, and yet in a poetically wonderful way. This love in this book portrays the ideal of physical love between a man and a woman. Well, that brings us to our theme this morning, congregation, with longing hearts, the Shulamite and the king express their mutual love. Solomon, we know, is the inspired writer. We see here, uh, as, as he is introduced in the very first verse, which forms a kind of a title to the whole book, Re reading verse 1, we, we have these words, the Song of Songs which is Solomon's. He says, the song of songs. 
It indicates there are a number of songs in here. There are meant there's various songs, and yet together they form one song, if you will. And it implies here these words, the song of songs implies this is the best of Solomon's songs, the very best. In 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 32, Solomon tell, we read that Solomon spoke 3,000 proverbs. We can't imagine how he did that. 3,000 proverbs and 1,005 songs he wrote. Well, this is his song of songs. This is the very best of the best that Solomon put forward, for indeed it has become part of Holy Scripture. The Bible uses the expression of God being the God of gods and Jesus Christ being the Lord of lords. And within the temple there is the Holy of Holies. Well, this is the Song of Songs. This song stands completely by itself as the very best that God has given to us in this particular part of the Scriptures, this wisdom literature. This is the very best of Solomon's songs. It's in a class all by itself. And what do we begin to see right from the outset as we begin reading this, this um, particular song of songs? Well, we see first the Shulamite. That's how she is called. She's referred to in chapter 6, verse 13, by that name. We see the Shulamite, this young maiden, with a longing heart express her love to her husband. We begin to read at verse 1 and 2. The song of songs, which is Solomon's, and she says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. She expresses her deep-seated, longing, loving desire to be with her beloved. At this point in this collection of songs, they are not yet married, but they are in their days of courting, courtship. And she eagerly anticipates their love to be consummated in marriage, as we see portrayed, if you would jump ahead to chapter 3, verses 6 and following. And so anticipating that and uh, loving him very much, she says, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. She awaits her beloved to come to him to initiate those kisses of love that she wants to be lavished with those kisses of his mouth upon hers. Let him kiss me, she says. Notice how she expresses this without any kind of hesitation. There's absolutely no shame whatsoever in what she is saying. It's part of inspired Holy Scripture for us to ponder. She expresses without hesitation that holy physical love that God has created between a man and a woman when they begin to court together and to eventually be joined as one flesh. And this holy love created by God for a man and a woman is something that they are to be enraptured with. We know that the Bible associates wine with joy and gladness. We read of that in Psalm 104, verse example, and other places in the Bible. But she says this love is better than the wine which gladdens the heart. So great is this godly, passionate love that she has for him, she says it's even better than wine. And that is the sincere delight of this young maiden to have in her heart the Shulamite for Solomon. This passionate, pure, and holy, God-ordained love. 
Brothers and sisters, may, may that love as well be living in your hearts as you live together as husbands and wives. And some of you who may be in the, in, the, in the time of courtship in your early youth, that such pure love also would be living in your heart for the one that you are courting. This is something pure and holy and good that has design, has, God has designed for the good of the human race and for the good of your marriages all the days that God has given you to be married together. This is God-given. This is precious. This may not be corrupted. This is not cheap love. Enduring, godly, true, and holy. She continues to speak about that in verse 3. Speaking about the man whom she loves, Solomon, she says, because the fragrance of your good ointments, because of the fragrance of your good ointments, your name is ointment poured forth. Therefore the virgins love you. And then she says to Solomon, draw me away. And the daughters say, we will run after you, namely after the king as well. This Shulamite knows that the scent or the fragrance of the ointment that he is wearing is something that will excite her emotions and her passions and make her all the more eager in her desire to be together with him. Apparently in those times, men would anoint their bodies to a degree with this precious ointment. It kind of was like a, a cologne, if you will, or perhaps a deodorant of some sort. And it had a very fragrant odor, and it was something that excited the deep, passionate feelings of the Shulamite for her beloved. But it was more than the scent or the fragrance of the oil with which he was anointed that delighted her, but it was the fragrance of the good ointments that he wore pointed to his very name. She says, she says your name is ointment poured forth. As if to say, your name speaks of you who are the anointed of God. And that is, of course, what Solomon also was. She sings forth the praises of Solomon's name, calling it ointment poured forth. Now, we know Solomon's name means the peace of God. It's from the Hebrew word shalom, which is the root word from which the word Solomon comes from. His name testifies of his highly esteemed character, the anointed of the Lord, and, um, and that that fragrance is something that delights her, not only the, the, the smell of it, but especially his personality, his character, his exalted status as the anointed of God. As the fragrance of his of his ointments, his perfumes, if you will, go before him, so also his good reputation goes before him uh, in the midst of the people of the children of Israel. So much so that she says, therefore the virgins love you. These virgins, we'll speak about more in a moment, these are these daughters of Jerusalem. They, they too love the king, and they too would run after him. Meanwhile, she says, draw me away. That speaks of her specific love for him. These virgins, they love the king too, esteemed of God, but not in the kind of way that the Shulamite does with her intimate, passionate love for him alone. 
And that's certainly what our text teaches us here, teaches us here, her love for him and his love for her. Indeed, she says, draw me away. Draw me away. She wants to be with him. Now, we need to read this text congregation from the perspective of the Shulamite looking back on the days of her courtship, on the days that have transpired. These words were written, of course, before the events took place. And, and so from that perspective, she's looking back on what she anticipates he is going to do and what he, of course, did do. She longs to be drawn away by him to enjoy their mutual love in privacy under his tender care. Draw me away. And isn't that something we all delight in in our days of courtship when we were dating the one who was, we were going to be married to and enjoyed those times of intimacy together? Something pure and holy given to us by God. Yet, we come, in, come to verse 4, we, we, we suddenly have a bit of a shifting of gears here. We see a brief dialogue now between the Shulamite herself and these virgins, these daughters of Israel. And these daughters of Israel, or of Jerusalem, they form a kind of a chorus, if you will, echoing in the background on, at one time with poetic support for the Shulamite and her cause, and then shifting to their support in a poetic way for Solomon and his cause, serving both ends, if you will, together. And they say as well, we will run after you as they speak of the king. And the next thing the Shulamite says, the king has brought me into his chambers. And the daughters of Jerusalem respond saying, we'll be glad and rejoice in you, speaking to the Shulamite. We will remember your love more than wine, they say to her and to the king. And then she says, rightly, do they love you. They rejoice in the love that the Shulamite has for the king, her beloved. And they confess that his love for her is also better than wine. And then she responds, rightly, do they love you? She knows that it's very right and necessary for these daughters of Jerusalem to also love their king. Isn't all of Israel supposed to love their God-anointed king as a servant of the Lord? Well, so it's right for these daughters of Jerusalem to also say, we will be glad and rejoice in you, and we will even run after you. And at the end of verse 4, the Shulamite says, Rightly do they love you. It's good and proper for all these other women to also love their king in, in that particular kind of way that we can love our king. Whether we might even think of our prime minister or the king or the queen of England or whoever is in, in leadership over us as a nation, there's something right about loving our leader, isn't, isn't there? There is. But we, we, of course, focus here upon the, on the, uh, upon the church of Jesus Christ and upon the king that God had then set upon the throne to rule wisely and so forth. Rightly do they love you, she says. Indeed, we need to be sure, congregation, that this man, Solomon, is the anointed of the Lord. He has been anointed with that precious anointing oil to inaugurate him into his kingship. And yet here we need to pause and, and, to, and, to, and to see that now is the occasion, it seems, for our hearts as we read this text to, to cause our hearts to rise to something higher, 
to something that all God's people would long for. God's giving of Israel a true and a mighty king who is greater than all the kings of the earth. That true son of David whom God had promised to his people in 2 Samuel chapter 7. The promise of the Lord. The anointed of the Lord. Even the Messiah of Israel is what is being hinted at here even though in a veiled kind of fashion concerning God's goodness to his people and their need for a Messiah. Indeed, the text here would seem rather wanting if God intended to leave his people and leave us with thoughts simply on this horizontal plane as if, all that that, as if that is all that is being pointed to here and nothing higher. No congregation here, I would bid you see something, some glimpses of the Lord Jesus Christ, of he being Israel's true king, who in the fullness of time would come, who God's people would have been longing for with longing hearts for centuries to be their great king and for him to also take his beloved into his chambers. Notice how the Shulamite speaks of the king having brought me into his chambers. Well, the idea is here that Jesus Christ would bring us into his heavenly sanctuary, into his eternal chambers having brought us into peace with God and rest from all our sins and sorrows through his mediation and his redeeming love to us. But quickly we must move on in our text because things keep changing here and we need to deal with all these details as they come. We look to verse 5. She now begins to reflect upon her own self. She has expressed so much love for Solomon and now and now she looks kind of inward in verse 5, as if to say, oh, but guess what? You know, she steps back. She says, I am dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not look upon me because I'm dark, because the sun has tanned me. Well, what's really going on here? She's been expressing expressing the delight of her human love for Solomon. But as she looks upon herself, she sees that that love sometimes come under, comes under a lot of distress as well and dismay. Human love has its high points, of course, but it also has its low points. It has its trials and doubts and distresses. And, and that is how she now is in a state of mind, so to speak. She says, I am dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Keter, like the curtains of Solomon, do not look upon me because I'm dark, because the sun has tanned me. She looks at her own natural beauty and she's dismayed. She now has been darkened by the harsh rays of the sun. She's dismayed. She likens herself to the tents of Kedar. Now, Kedar is a region in, in Saudi Arabia where, where various Bedouin tribes lived and their tents were all made of very dark or black goat skin. She likens her outside skin appearance to those dark tents of those Bedouin tribes. Or like the curtains or the tapestries that hung in Solomon's palaces. Apparently, they also were very dark. And that kind of darkness was not something that she believed uh, helped to enhance her beauty. Apparently, in those times, a woman's natural beauty was to be judged to be the more beautiful if it retained some of its natural whiteness, its white color. 
But she's lost that white color and now she is dismayed. And she doesn't even want the daughters of Jerusalem to look upon her to see what she has lost. It's a distressing thing for her. It kind of throws a glitch in their whole, this whole expression of her love. It kind of stops her. And she blames her own brothers. She's, let's again read verse 6. She says, do not look upon me because I'm dark, because the sun has tanned me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. She blames her very dark skin on her brothers who, for whatever reason, were very angry with her and they relegated her to the vineyards as if to say, you stay at home here and you keep all the vineyards and never mind anything else. And she's had to endure the harsh rays of the blazing sun for a good while. We see that she's more than simply, uh, she, she's a keeper of the, of the vineyard. She's, uh, she's not a very happy camper here at all. She's maybe thinking, might my dark tan skin somehow change the love that my beloved has for me? And so she longs to get away from there and to be joined with her beloved. That's why she ends verse 6 saying, but my own vineyard I have not kept. She's been trying to get out of there as, as quickly as she can and not finish her job, so to speak, and, and to be away and to be near to him. She wants to get out of the place. And so she pleads in verse 7 to her beloved, Tell me, O oh, you whom I love, where you feed your flock, where you make it rest at noon, for why should I be as one who veils herself by the flocks of your companions? She knows that Solomon has flocks of sheep somewhere, but where exactly they are, she does not know. They, they must be nearby. But she knows if she can find these flocks, and perhaps she can also find him as well. We see here that Solomon, too, is a keeper of sheep. He had vast, vast herds of sheep, we know the scriptures tell us. But where exactly they were, if she can find them, then she can also find him. Her heart is sick with love for finding him. But here's the thing, she does not want to be seen as someone who is veiled. She does not want to be seen as someone who's wandering about in the, country, in, the, uh, in the countryside, hither and yon, in search of a man. Or searching as if she doesn't know where she's going. She might as well be blindfolded, or going astray, or giving the appearance of someone who veils herself, looking for a man, as if to say some people might then take her as a prostitute. But no, she says, please tell me where you feed your flock at noon, as if to say, so I can get there as quick as possible and create the least amount of a scene, for why should I be as one who veils herself by the flocks of your companions? You see, this Shulamite woman, in the time of her courtship, wants to maintain a holy character and purpose that would befit a young maiden of the Lord in Israel. She wants to maintain a godly, chaste demeanor that is pleasing to God. Her courtship is supposed to be a holy process of time in which she increasingly prepares herself to be married to him. This must be done above board, so to speak, 
and good in God's sight. And this was something for the children of Israel to read and to take the heart as they were reading these love poems too and hearing them instructed. And also for God's people in the New Testament as well. As we begin the expression of our love with a young man, a young woman in our courtship days, we too must make sure we do everything in such a way that it is honoring to God so that we don't cheaply take for ourselves what yet does not belong to us but to express the love we have for a young man, for a young woman in a way that is pure and that remains unblemished from all sexual immorality. And so this Shulamite ends this first poetic song on a high note, on a holy note, for everybody to know that what she is going about doing is good and decent and honorable to God. And that's the impression she wants to leave with all the shepherds who are coming, she's coming close to and by whose tents she has to go by. She ends on a holy note here. And yet there's that continual desires of her, her deep love to be with her beloved as soon as possible. And that brings this congregation to our second point regarding the the longing hearts the Shulamite and the king express for one another. Now it's Solomon's turn to begin to speak, and he must answer her questions and deal with her righteously as well, because for sure he loves her deeply as well. So secondly, we see the king express his love for her, and he begins by saying, If you do not know, O fairest among women, if, as if to say, if you don't know how to find me, she says, follow in the footsteps of the flock and feed your little goats beside the shepherd's tents. Where you find all these shepherd's tents, perhaps it's in a valley somewhere close by, then you know you're headed in the right direction and there you will find me. She gives him directions, that gives her directions that she will understand. And so we see that this Shulamite is not only a keeper of vineyards, but also a keeper of the sheep. She's a woman with many abilities. She's able to take matters into her own, own hands and take care of things. And yet her, her, her outward beauty, too, is something that needs to be noted. Solomon calls her, O fairest among women. That could be translated, O most beautiful of women. That is how he speaks to her in verse 8. He praises her for her beauty. As if to say there are many virgins in Israel who are nice, good-looking, fine-looking women. There are many daughters in Jerusalem who are beautiful women. But this country maiden, this woman of lowly stature, she is the love of his life. She is the one he deeply longs for and loves with all his heart. She says, you will find me when you feed your goats beside the shepherd's tents. She alone is his passionate love, and his love separates all others from her. And he loves her with undivided love. That too is something for us to keep in mind, brothers, especially when we get married, to have that undivided love for our wives. He says to her in verse 10 as we move on, 
He says, I've compared you, my love, to my filly among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with chains of gold. See how he reveals the love of his heart for this young maiden. She ought not to doubt in the least that she is a very beautiful woman and that he loves her with a with a perfect and faithful love. She indeed is a woman of striking beauty, but she's also adorned with many admirable qualities. Young ladies, you might not be too impressed with the fact of your husband comparing you to a filly or to a horse, but that's the analogy that Solomon uses here. We ought to remember, perhaps, to know that Solomon, I mean, that uh, Pharaoh had many, many horses pulling many, many of his chariots, and his horses were decorated with dazzling ornaments of gold and silver and chains of gold and so forth, and also decked out with richly embroidered cloth. And so, as we see those horses so gorgeously arrayed pulling Pharaoh's chariots, we see a picture of great beauty combined with royal splendor, and that's what Solomon ascribes to the Shulamite. And so he adds to her beautiful dignity, saying in verse 10, your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with chains of gold. And then right away, these daughters of Jerusalem also pipe up in verse 11, saying to her, we will make your ornaments of gold and with studs of silver. We see this jewelry upon this lovely woman, this Shulamite, and that jewelry is intended to set off all the more her natural beauty and to enhance all the more her beautiful appearance and her character. She's not just simply one of the daughters of Jerusalem, she has won his heart, and she might not quickly affirm her own honorable status or her own feminine beauty because she's dark now, and she's only a simple country girl, but Solomon praises her beauty and his love to her without question. This is the woman he loves. This is his bride. She belongs to him, and he to her. He increases her happiness and compliments her beauty all he can and gives her every confidence that she is his. And in the process, then instilling uh, trust and delight in her heart that she is safely his. Congregation here, again, we see that expression, that ideal of pure human love, this precious love that God has ordained. Something for you as men in the congregation to also seek to instill in the hearts of your wives or for the one you truly love, that you give her every confidence of her beauty and of your love for her, that she's precious in your sight and that she is safe with you and that she can trust in you that you will love her truly tenderly, gently, purely. Does not Ephesians 5.25 tell us that Christ so loved the church that he gave himself up for her? What greater measure of love could you possibly express 
to your beloved, but to give up your life for her. That's what Jesus did for his church. It was the ultimate expression of his love to, to die for her, to live for her, to love her, to cherish her forever, to make her a royal bride, to make her something so beautiful. The church, too, has all its warts and all its, you know what, all its corrupted things. But Christ came to make us a thing of beauty. And so as we go back to this king, this king of Israel and his love for the Shulamite, he sees her as a person of great worth, of great beauty, a truly lovely person inside and out, someone whom God has made. Don't ever forget that. God made her for him. And more than that, he provided her for him. And similarly, she found in him a man as well of exceptional quality, a man of handsome character and dignity, also made by God. When a couple gets married, it's not something accidental. But God joins two people together in love. We see the Lord God showing how he works here in this text to bring two together, even though his name is not mentioned, yet we know this is what is happening. She found a man handsomely made by God inside and out, a pleasant character provided by God for her to have, to hold, and to cherish. Notice what she says in verse 16 about him. She says, Behold, you are handsome, my beloved. Yes, pleasant. Also, our bed is green, and the beams of our houses are of cedar. Congregation, here we see the, a song that celebrates human love between a man and a woman, which is to be consummated in marriage, and of course, with the marriage bed. She speaks of her bed also being green, a symbol, a color of fertility, of prosperity, of fruitfulness. Again, from who? From the Lord himself. A picture which she anticipates coming, though she is not there yet. They're still in the time of the courtship. They still have to remain chaste and honorable before God uh, with regard to each other. And yet this is something she looks forward to, this handsome, beloved, pleasant man of a character that God has provided for her. Such love, congregation, what can we say about it? What can we say? We see something of this wonderful expression of human love in a story, like the story of Ruth and Boaz. You know that story too. It's not simply a love story, but we certainly see that dynamic there. How do we figure this one out? Well, Proverbs 30.18, I believe, is very helpful. Solomon writes, there are three things which are too wonderful for me. Yes, four things I do not understand. Number one, the way of an eagle in the air. Two, the way of a serpent on a rock. Three, the way of a ship in the midst of the sea. But fourth, the way of a man with a maiden. Can you tell me about that? The way of a man. 
with a maiden. The writer has just finished saying, these things are too wonderful for me. There's something glorious and beautiful about that. It's almost like I can't find the words to express what they really, what they really entail and what they really, what they really mean. How do we know this wonderful way of a man with a virgin? Well, we see that way being expressed in the Song of Solomon. It gives us clues. It gives us insight. It gives us the wisdom of God, congregation. The wisdom of God within the way of a man with a virgin. There is the wisdom of God expressed with all its biblical purity and mystique. Hey, there's something mysterious. Something mysteriously wonderful about the love of Christ for a church that was so unblemished. We who were once children of wrath and fitted for destruction. He came to save, to make beautiful, to make holy. Talk about the wonder of divine love. And something of that God has put in the human heart between a man and a woman. This mystery of love appointed by God from the very beginning when he said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. There you have it. Then and there, God already designed a human love be the cement, the glue, the the tissue, if you will, that holds a man and a woman together as one flesh. How could it ever be without love? How could it be unless God had designed it to be between a man and a woman? To be highly prized, to be protected at all costs, and to be cherished forever, what God has designed and then even something more, congregation, to begin to see in a text like this already that God was going to use human love and human marriage within marriage to be an emblem of something far greater, an emblem of Jesus Christ and his unconditional love for his church. And that we see unfolding as we proceed through this beautiful little book this collection of love poetry. We have here, congregation, something very, very good that God has made for us to seek to live up to as husbands and wives, as young people, to live up to and to glorify God for forever. Amen.